Good Saturday evening, everyone. Oh, we're doing better. We're doing better. Invite you to turn to the book of Jude. Uh, might be hard to find 25 verses tucked in the uh, back of your Bibles in the New Testament. 25 simple verses. My encouragement to you all is to memorize this book of the Bible, to revisit these Old Testament stories that will be referenced even tonight. Uh, my prayer is that you will uh, be enthused and excited to investigate more thoroughly the truth found in this 25-verse book of the Bible. 25-verse book of the Bible. Let me ask you, I know we just had a wonderful meal together. We'll have another wonderful meal tomorrow. It's part of the privilege of uh, uh, what we share together as, uh, as believers, those who uh, know the Lord. We enjoy fellowship, which all, often includes uh, fine dining together. Uh, but I also understand that that brings about slumber. Um, and so I uh, would like to engage you in a variety of ways. Uh, I wanted to start, before we pray, I wanted to start this session just asking you this question, and uh, uh, this is not your occasion to preach. Some of you might like that, but th I'm not asking, you for, uh, asking for you to go on and on, but I wonder if you would just thus far, four verses into the book of Jude, give us uh, an, uh, an observation or a reaction. What stands out so far? Four verses. Hey, Jude, we've just begun, but what, uh, what has ca captured your attention? What's your reaction thus far uh, to our study? And we're not doing this for long, I promise, but would love to uh, hear from you. Any reactions? No doubt. Was there a comment in the back I didn't hear? The need to fight, the need to contend earnestly, agonize over, no doubt. What else stands out? Just quickly, we're four verses in, but would love to hear from you. Zeal, no, no doubt. He was pretty excited, wasn't he? Pretty passionate about his now Savior, uh, his half-brother, the Lord Jesus. What else stands out thus far? The triad, isn't that something? Have you begun counting? There's, there's numerous, so try to find them. I'll highlight them a, a little bit along the way. Anything else? I heard it in harmony, no doubt. Can I go on and on about my salvation? This salvation we have in common with Jude and with Peter, this like-minded, same kind of salvation, what he really wanted to write about from the beginning, but because of the spirit leading and because of the need that was apparent, uh, there was another subject matter. What else stands out? And it was prevalent then, and, and John isn't it today. We're bombarded with that philosophy that says, do anything you want. As a believer, take grace and twist it, change it, distort it, abuse it, and uh, live however you would like. It's all, all around us. All around us. What else? Before we pray. 
<laughs> there you go. Dad would love that one, Chris. Ah, oh, nice. Was there another one before we dive in for session number two? See, this is the goal. The goal is for all of us to dig in on our own and take a peek at these 25 verses and, and chew on them, meditate upon, think through what this really is all about contextually and by way of practical application as well. So let's ask God to help us. Ask God to help us as we tune in uh, for this next section or two. Father, you indeed are great and greatly to be praised, and we count it an honor and a privilege to gather together in Cincinnati freely without persecution and open your word. Father, we pray that we would sense the urgency to fight for the truth of your word. May we do that as moms and dads and sons and daughters, as individuals, as employees. Father, we pray that we would make a decision to join in the fight. Paul encouraged us in other writings to guard through the Holy Spirit this treasure that has been entrusted to us, to retain the standard of sound word. So may we realize, Father, that there is a fight uh, worth fighting for. And it is the truth found in your word. So may we agonize over it. May we contend earnestly. May we fight for the faith. And may we be on guard, aware of uh, the opposition that is before us, sometimes uh, within and sometimes uh, more often without. Uh, we pray that we would be aware. So we ask that you guide our thoughts now. Keep us awake after a wonderful meal. Help us to, through your, uh, through the Holy Spirit, help us to understand the truth of your word. May he illuminate it so it makes plain and simple sense. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 1 through 4, my friends, the, the greeting and the purpose statement, introductory comments, if you will, from Jude, several triads that I hope you saw in uh, highlighted in some way, shape, or form. Again, I don't know this factually, but it sure seems like Jude appreciated the number three. And we'll see that he emphasizes that as we begin the description of these false teachers. Here's what they look like. Here's how they act. Here's what they are thinking, and here's what they are doing. And so let me say by way of practical application it would be great for us to think about the reality of our lives, the reality of our worlds, really the reality of the way in which we are thinking and living, and compare it to what he warns us about in regards to the description of false teachers. I think there's a, a, a slippery slope that we can often find ourselves on that allows us to embrace a teaching that is false as we're bombarded with this stuff all around us. And so may we take a good hard look at our world, our culture, our surroundings, but our, our own lives as well. The next section, he does something which he does throughout this short little book. 
he goes back to the Old Testament. This time he goes back and he identifies from the past stories that are true of groups of people, groups of people. And he doesn't do it necessarily in chronological order, but I would submit to you and suggest to you that he does it in an intentional order so we might see the, the progression of how false teaching uh, starts and what it looks like as it continues and, and how indeed it will ultimately result. So we see three groups of people from the Old Testament. Again, five, verse 5 through 16, all a description of these false teachers, those who, as we saw in verse 4, have crept in unnoticed, who are teaching licentious living as they abuse the concept of grace, turning it, and denying the person of the Lord Jesus. Group number one, verse five, Old Testament survey. Remember the history of the children of Israel in captivity, owned and enslaved, and the exodus occurred, and all kinds of people experienced that reality. Were they all saved? Many are shaking their heads no, and you're right to do so. And so uh, this reality talks to us about people who literally experience deliverance, God's chosen people, Israel, from Egypt, the exodus and deliverance, and yet the reality is they didn't believe. They experienced it, but didn't respond appropriately to the person of God and uh, who he is and what he has said. Now, I desire, he says this very politely, by the way, uh, very kind in the way he begins verse 5. He says, I desire to remind you, but then says, you really don't need the reminder. You know the story, but we all need to remember, be reminded of things that we know to be true. And so that's what he does here as he goes back to the Old Testament. Verse 5, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all. And again, this once for all, this idea of here's a, here's a truth, here's revelation that has been given to us. And so we have it. There's a finality in that reality. And that concept is emphasized in that phrase. Again, you know all things once for all. They're certain and definite. But let me remind you what happened, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, there's the history. You know about this one, saved Jewish individuals, recipients of this particular uh, writing from Jude. We're recipients as well because practically it's part of God's word. You know this story. Remember the story, what happened? That the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently, later on, after the fact, destroyed those who did not believe. What's the rest of the story? What do we know to be true? What happened to these individuals because of their unbelief? Well, it says they were destroyed, right? 
Did they experience the promised land? They, they did not. And so here's a story of people, literally this took place, rescued and delivered. They went through it. They were aware of it. And yet the reality of their response to the person of God was what? Unbelief. Unbelief. Here's where it starts, my friends. This re- reaction, this response to the revelation of who God is and what he has said, what he has done. It starts with this concept of unbelief. False teaching, apostasy is all around, and and Jude intentionally on purpose is linking these who have crept in to stories of old saying just like that. It was just like that. When these people were rescued and delivered from Egypt, the reality of their circumstance was that they, they ultimately did not believe, and as a result, destruction. John. Yeah, I, I tend to, to talk about the whole, to lean to the whole generation. Um, not, not dogmatically, but that's my leaning. What do you think? Well, and I, I'm with you. They, I've heard both. I've heard both, and I've also heard this, and I don't want to muddy the waters, uh, but I teased you with this earlier. Is he talking about people who were saved or not saved? What's he talking about? And he doesn't make that abundantly clear. And, and so are there, are there individuals who are saved that buy into apostasy? I know people like that. You know people like that. So we know that to be a reality, to be true. And so notice intentionally there are hints and indications, but he doesn't major on that. What does he major on? Lack of faith and unbelief. And how they responded to the reality of who God is and what he, what he had done. And so I wish, you wish too, John, I know to be true. I wish we knew definitively which group of people is he talking about. We don't. What do we know definitively? They didn't believe. What do we know definitively? They were destroyed. What do we know definitively? They experienced deliverance. Right? So we know that. Does he say any more? No. So how were they originally to respond to this first illustration of a group of people? What did he say sincerely, not as a setup, not just being polite? What did he say when he began this section? I don't really need to remind you of this because you know it all. You're aware of this, but we all need reminders, so I'm reminding you. You know this once for all. Here's the fact of the story. So if we're not certain, what should we do? Go back to the story. And he does that three times here in this section. Here's the next triad. Here's three groups of people. First, those who definitively were being held captive and were delivered. Those who definitively did not believe. Those who definitively had a consequence to that unbelief 
destruction. What was that destruction? Does that destruction always mean eternal separation, or does that destruction mean death? And we can see illustrations from a variety of Old Testament stories that indicate both. The concept that he's trying to laser in on is the fact of unbelief and the consequence that resulted. What's the next story? So, yeah, this, this one, we've got to go back to a few stories. And some would say, some would say this, this references Genesis 6. Uh, and I, ha- I tend to lean that way, but some would say it just references the reality of what happened to Satan and other demons. And so what do we have to definitively conclude from this particular illustration of a group of people? These are angelic beings. What does he say about these angelic beings? Let's see. And notice the progression. It starts with unbelief. What's the characteristic we see next in this angelic world? And angels who did not keep their own domain. What does that phrase indicate in regards to the reality of our God and the reality of angels? There's a sphere, right? There's a certain order. There's a certain design and structure. These angels had a a certain domain, position, responsibility, reality. We know that. And angels, we know it's dealing with angels who ultimately are, are fallen. And angels who did not keep their own domain. What does that say about those angels? Yeah, so... So here we start with unbelief, and then we we deal with this reality of not only unbelief, but a disregard for authority. It's a a progression, really, of what we see happening when, when apostasy and false teaching has its full effect. It starts with saying, oh, you know what? Uh, I no longer believe what I once believed. And now, not only do I not believe it, I have no regard for this authority that ultimately belongs to someone else. These angels had the ability to say, you know what? I no longer want this. It says it. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned, what's the next phrase that describes the reality of order, structure, authority, and uh, right. Abandon their proper abode. We have a God of, of plan. We have a God of purpose. We have a God of promise. I have a 12-year-old daughter. I have a 10-year-old son. And we are desperately, in a variety of ways, through a, vi- a variety of means and methods, trying to convey very positively that if you want God's best for your life, do life God's way. He's the one who makes. He's the one who creates. He's the one who has authority to give life and to take life. He's the only one who has that authority. He is sovereign, he rules, and he reigns. And so if you want to have God's best in your life, Johnny, Annie, 
Hear me say to you, my children, literally, I'm saying this to them, do life God's way. Accept his structure, his design, his plan, his purpose, his order. Their proper abode, it says. Their own domain, it says. These angels, by God's creative created authority and power had specific role, place, function, and they left it. They abandoned it, it says, their proper abode. Now, what did they do when they did that? Depends on who we're dealing with, which group of angels we're referencing. Um, we could take a fair amount of time, which we won't, but you should take some time to go back to Genesis 6 because this is likely, although I'm not suggesting dogmatically, my footnotes say it is, but there's a few takes on this group of people, these angels, and what they ultimately did after they left their proper abode. But what is the issue? What was the issue? I forget already about uh, the children of Israel. Remind me, I forget that one. What was the issue? Unbelief, right? And as a result, destruction. What's contextually in one verse is the issue that is identified for us with the angels? Not their behavior, which again, I lean towards Genesis 6 as well in their uh, gross immorality, no doubt. But what is the issue that we see in verse 5 regarding the angels? In abandoning their proper place, disregard, disrespect for the authority of the Almighty. What does that ultimately say? And we'll see this again. We may not take the time, but we'll see it again when we see Jude going back to the Old Testament and not looking at groups of people, but looking at individuals. This triad is seen in the pattern of individuals that we'll see tomorrow morning. But ultimately, what, what lesson, what mindset are we seeing in the example of these angels? What ultimately are they saying to God? That's it. That's it. Dave, were you going to say that as well? That they, there's a will exercise, no doubt, but they're saying to the Almighty, guess what? I'm in charge and you're not. I'm doing it my way. They abandoned, they left their proper abode. So it's right for us to want to know more about what they did once they left, but that's not the emphasis of Jude. It is knowing the story, and all, all his audience primarily was saved Jewish individuals who were familiar with the story, the stories that were once for all given to them. But don't miss the emphasis of the abandoning of what God has created and placed and had in his order for the angels. What was the consequence for these folks? And we see it in Peter 2, this illustration. It's, uh, if you want to go extra biblical, uh, there's greater description of this in uh, the book of Enoch. But, but what, does, what do we see as the consequence of whatever they did? Right now, doesn't it say that? Yeah, look at it, verse 6. 
He has kept in eternal bonds. Who's in internal bonds right now? These angels. Literally. These angelic beings who abandoned, left God's order, designed purpose, and had the mindset, it's my way, not your way, behaved in an improper way, no doubt. Genesis 6, likely. There's consequences for them right now. They're in chains. And later, what's coming? Judgment. Do you see a little bit of a pattern? Group, group number one, children of Israel. Unbelief, destruction. Group number two, angelic beings. Disregard, disrespect for authority. Consequence now, consequence later. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Has that happened? It's coming. Do you believe that's coming? There's a day coming where something we are not terribly familiar with and don't think much about is coming. God's wrath. Isn't it? Here's a reaction, by the way. I'm going to give you this ahead of time. A great reaction for a believer is this, as we go through the book of Jude. Praise God Almighty that my Savior took upon him the wrath of God. And when I trusted in him and when I said to the Lord Jesus, I want to accept this free gift of salvation. I can't do anything to earn it. I can't do anything to keep it. But when I accept by faith this gift of salvation, I no longer have to be concerned about your wrath, period. That's a great reaction for a believer, isn't it? Here's the deal. For an unbeliever, someone who never trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, who's buying into the lies of the apostate and false teaching of the day, never trusting in Christ, guess what they will experience? God's wrath. It's coming. And so these groups of people, these three illustrations from the Old Testament, all convey the same thing. Different emphasis, unbelief, disregard, disrespect for authority. There's one more coming. That is the next progression to buying into the lie of the land. But it all ends in judgment. It's coming. What are we supposed to think of? Group number three in this triad. What are we supposed to think of when we hear the names of two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. What are we supposed to think of? Destruction. Why? Excellent mumblings. Uh, indeed. It's, it's judgment. It's uh, consequence of behavior. It's God's wrath. It's hatred towards sin. Uh, warnings that occurred, revisit Sodom and Gomorrah. But there's an interesting phrase in this verse that we, we need to understand. Those two cities, from that point on, and their names, as they are mentioned or read, are supposed to serve as examples. Do you believe that? They do, and that's supposed to come to mind whenever we hear their names. Let's look at the verse. 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah, and not just those two cities, and the cities around them, since they in the same way, this helps us contextually understand what the angels did, because it references similar behavior, which likens us to, or links to, likely the Genesis 6-6 account. In like manner, in a similar way, these cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these do this, they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited. Have you been to a museum? Have you been to a museum where you go to a featured exhibit that you go and you watch and you view. And so what you see is to convey what happened. This verse is powerful and is interpreted really uniquely and creatively in our culture today. But these verses convey that these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, because of the reality of their gross immorality and pursuing after unnatural, strange flesh, which has been interpreted uh, as homosexual activity, experienced judgment and wrath, and those cities are now on display to remind everyone of God's perspective regarding gross immorality, strange flesh, sexual sin. They're exhibited as an example in undergoing, what is it? The punishment of eternal fire. Did they experience fire literally? They did, right? Those cities in their destruction. So rightly links to that historical reality, but also by way of practical application can point us to the end reality for those who never truly believe. Remember, for a believer, our response is praise God. I, I don't have to be concerned about God's wrath against sin. For an unbeliever, that's a major concern. Let me ask you a few practical questions in regards to this particular Example, the third of this particular triad. Notice the pattern. What was the first word? Unbelief. What was the second concept? Disregard, disrespect. We could use the word rebellion. What was the third that's emphasized in this less than chronological but intentional order? It results in behavior. They all end in destruction, all, every one of them. But it goes from a belief system, unbelief, to a deeper rooted reality. I'm in charge. You're not. I do what I want, not what you want, to behavior that is opposed in opposition to the word of God. That's the pattern. So I ask you practically, are you seeing this, these, this pattern these days? Are you seeing these days, I'm just asking some questions. Are you seeing these days a different perspective and view 
of this same sin. You've seen that these days? I know this to be true. And I'm not thinking of any of you or any particular family. But I know this to be true. That somewhere within your family, there's been a shift of thinking in regards to sexual sin, specifically in the area of homosexuality. Somewhere within your family, you're dealing with that. We've dealt with that. I no longer serve full-time with Emmaus Bible College. I serve with a sister organization, Believer Stewardship Services. I'll share a bit more about them uh, tomorrow, but there are some information brochures on the back table. At Emmaus, my last several years, more and more, we were encountering students who have a totally different perspective on uh, uh, homosexuality uh, than we have, than their parents have. Why is that? This, this pattern, friends, the pattern that is, that is before us um, is, is one of the reasons for and, and hear, me say, hear me say to you this. I want to get you thinking. I want to get you thinking about the reality of this particular subject matter. Understand this. The words I choose, I have to be so very careful. I'll say it this way. The gay community, they have made a declaration and statement, and it's this. This is the last generation of Christians that will oppose the subject matter of homosexuality and declare it as sin. They've made the statement. This is it. The last generation that will say, God says no, we say no, in regards to this particular subject matter. You know the reality, numerically, in regards to the gay community in comparison to the population as a whole, it's a minority. It's a minority. But the voice and the influence is significant. So, so here's what I want you to do. Not now necessarily. Brother Phil, if you wouldn't mind helping and getting another uh, to help, if you will. Here's a tool. And I want to describe the tool to you. And here's what I'd love for you to do. I'd love for you as a family, with your family, or if that doesn't work in your particular structure and world, with your spouse. That doesn't work for your reality individually. Figure out a setting where this works and go through this document. Let me describe the document for you. There's a... a preamble that describes it in greater detail than I will, but a group of evangelical scholars and theologians got together in, guess what city? Anybody know? Nashville. Some of you have the handout. Uh, it's called the Nashville Statement. They got together, and I'm thankful that they did, and they purpose to put together a statement, a document with numerous articles that address 
marriage, that address gender, that address sexuality. And it is a powerful tool. You can go online. How many have heard of it before, the Nashville Statement? You can go online. You can see those who have signed this document. You can sign the document. But I just wanted to walk you through the, the way in which this document is structured. There are articles, and in each article there's a statement, and it's important to understand this because you might read it incorrectly, but there's a statement that talks about what is affirmed. Here's what we believe, and there's a statement that talks about what is denied. Here's what we denied. There's 14 articles, and I would love for you to just go through this on your own or with somebody and talk it through. Because I would suggest to you this. This subject matter is prevalent today in our culture. This subject matter is something that the church has not thought through, talked through, and prepared themselves for as thoroughly, perhaps, as we ought. And so we need to catch up a little bit. And so I, I simply want to get you talking about it. My encouragement is that we allow Scripture to be the authority in this area as we would in any area. Understanding the illustration of this third group of people and what these cities are supposed to represent, what they have on display as an exhibit in regards to God's view and perspective and judgment uh, regarding behavior. I would say this to you. That's my niece's sweet baby, Melody. What a sweet, sweet, blessed, specially sanctified girl. I'm telling you. Here's what I'm going to say to you. And, and you may or may not agree, and that's fine. Some of you have changed your mind on this subject matter. And you don't know it. Some of you, and I have nobody in mind, so know that. Haven't had any conversations with the leadership that have said, will you please? I'm not, we're not there. But hear me say this to you. There's a different take on this subject matter. And one of the reasons why there's a different take on this subject matter is we have allowed the voice of culture to influence our thinking and belief system more than we have allowed Scripture to drive and govern our belief system. Now, that's a broad stroke statement, and I know that's dangerous, but I say that to get you thinking about the realities. There are some of these that you will have a hard time saying, I agree with. And I want to ask you this question humbly. Why is that the case today? What has changed? How have we gotten there, if that is your thinking and reality? I praise the Lord for the Nashville statement, for a group of people that are willing to say, you know what, here's what we say marriage is. Here's what we say, uh, here's what God says about marriage and God says about gender, and here's what God says about uh, sexual behavior. It's courageous to make such a statement. 
Evan and I uh, were talking about the book of Jude, knowing this subject matter would come up, and he shared with me a, uh, an article from the Wall Street Journal about one of the latest and greatest theologians, uh, an individual named Lady Gaga. And how Lady Gaga had grand criticism of our vice president's wife and her being a poor illustration of a Christian because she believes in marriage as being one man, one woman for life. And she's teaching at a Christian school, K through 8 in Virginia that has a statement about marriage that says thus and such. What a terrible example for our community of what a Christian is really all about and looks like. Lady Gaga makes such a statement. It's in the Wall Street Journal, friends. It's everywhere we turn. One of the things that we do at Believer Stewardship Services is we come, so, come alongside organizations, 5013Cs, camps, local churches, ministries, and we help them look at their bylaws, we help them look at their governance, help them look at their doctrinal statements and how they address this subject matter. We have, uh, we have worked with the Alliance Defending Freedom organization and they have offered in partnership with Believer's Stewardship Services this reality. That if we, and I'm not trying to sell, I'm just informing. That if we provide a local church, a camp, a ministry, an organization, the appropriate language that they could add to their doctrinal statement or their bylaws regarding this subject matter, marriage and gender, sexuality, biblically, that they will provide free legal counsel should that local church, camp, ministry, and organization encounter pushback from a community that does not embrace the same. There are a ton of churches, ministries, organizations that haven't thought this through. And so we come alongside and provide assistance regarding bylaws, governance, amendments appropriately, uh, to documents that are or more likely than not are not in place to help address this subject matter. That article in the Wall Street suggested that folks who believe the same thing as Mrs. Pence ought to be very careful to keep that belief system very quiet because they might be labeled a bigot or intolerant can't stand the redefining of those words these days. I have a dear friend who's in ministry who said, has said this. There's a day coming, he thinks, in our country that if we stand and if we fight for the faith and embrace the truth of God's word and keep our finger on the page, uh, it's likely that we will experience persecution for such things. That some of us might go to jail for such a stand. That's the day in which we live. And so Jude says, listen, I want to remind you from days gone by. 
I want to remind you from days gone by of groups of people who didn't believe, groups of people that rebelled, groups of people that lived licentiously, and the reality of such thinking and behavior and the consequences therein. Warning, warning. Danger, danger. Hammer time is still coming. So what's our reaction to that? For a believer, we ought to say, praise God. The wrath has been paid for in full. God is completely satisfied with our propitiation found and brought to us through the person of Christ. So the wrath has been paid for. For those who do not believe, what's the right reaction? Repentance and belief. Here's what he does next. Verses 8, 9, and 10. He brings it back to current day, current day for, the, for them, not for us. He brings it back to current day, and he says, okay, let's talk a little bit more about these things that were illustrated with these groups of people previously in the last triad, and let me in triad fashion describe them a bit more fully. Yet in the same manner, verse 8, these men, what men? The ones who have wormed their way in, crept, like, uh, uh, crept in snake-like, false teachers, the apostates that are being addressed in verses 5 through verse 16. We talked about the groups from the Old Testament. Fast forward to present day for them. Here's what they're like. Yet, in the same manner, these men also by dreaming. What in the world does that mean? Also by dreaming. There's a couple interpretations of that expression by dreaming. What could the, that phrase mean? Their imagination. Yeah, Ryan, uh, we use that phrase sometimes. Uh, are you dreaming? We use that when someone says something, makes a claim that is ridiculous, and we say, are you dreaming? And it could be that. It could be that these folks are just not thinking clearly and we'll see why, because of the very nature of what they're like. It could be that they were saying, and we've seen this in a variety of uh, systems of belief, that they were saying, you know what, this is a dream I had. And as a result, this is how we can live. So they're either attesting to or saying that they had a dream that allows them to live licentiously, or they're out of their minds dreaming, thinking in a ridiculous form and fashion. But nevertheless, it makes a summary statement about what they're like. Yet in the same manner, these men also by dreaming, here we go, count it, defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. Does that sound familiar? Similar characteristics as the groups from the Old Testament. Not the same order, but similar characteristics nonetheless. Again, he's saying, here's what they're like, these false teachers that lived in Jude's day. Defiling the flesh. What does that represent, that statement, defiling the flesh? Immorality. Immorality. 
likely sexual immorality, likely linked to the idea of strange flesh uh, that was mentioned earlier. Behavior, inappropriate behavior, defiling of the flesh, rejecting authority and, and this uh, disrespect, disregard, rebellion against angelic majesties. You need to know this, and, and much has been made about this reality, but there are at least two extra-biblical writings that are referenced in the book of Jude. One we'll get to uh, now, and one we'll, we've already seen and we'll see again in uh, the latter sessions. Uh, one is the book of Enoch, and one is the Assumption of Moses. There's more information that are included in those extra-biblical writings. Let me ask you practically uh, the right understanding about those extra-biblical writings. Are they inspired like the 66 books? Not part of the canon. Those books, the book of Enoch, the Assumption of Moses, do not have the same inspiration and as a result do not have the same authority but are those things referenced that are in the book of Jude inspired? The answer is yes. And that's the way we have to deal with these references to extra-biblical writings. Jude is not saying that all that is found in these extra-biblical writings is on the same par, on par with the same level, the same authority as Holy Scripture. There are many systems of belief out there that use extra-biblical writing and say it's just as authoritative as Scripture. Jude's not saying that, and this is not an example of that. But when those things are used and quoted by those who are being led by the Holy Spirit to record Scripture, then those quotes are inspired. Make sense? And we have that a couple of times. We have it here. Where does this information come from? an extra-biblical writing. What happened? Verse 9 and 10. But Michael, who's Michael? Oh, there you go. He's the archangel. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment. Where do we find that story, chapter and verse? We don't, except here. But it's here. And so verse 9 and 10 are indeed are as inspired as every other part of the canon of Scripture. So what happened in this story? Who are our main characters? Moses, Michael, the archangel, and what are they disagreeing about? What do we do with the body of Moses? And what is the lesson to be learned from this verse in verse 10? that we've already seen in the examples previously cited from the Old Testament. Here they are arguing, but when Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil, so the devil and Michael getting after it, arguing about the body of Moses, what is true about Michael, the archangel? What did he have that the devil surely did not? Authority, domain, abode, order. And so this is what is said about Michael the archangel. 
he did not dare. Did not dare pronounce against him. Against whom? Satan, a railing judgment, but said, the one who is in charge, I am not, and I respect his order, his design, the structure that is in place. He will bring it and rebuke you. We have a great example from this story and from Michael the archangel. Is the same true of the devil and of these false teachers? Verse 10. But these men, what men? False teachers, those who crept in, verse 4. Certain persons, unaware, unnoticed, have crept in. But these men, verse 10, revile the things which they do not understand. Isn't that a powerful statement? They are so far gone that cognitively they have no clue, and yet they still revile against. Isn't that wild? Why is that? Look at what it goes on to say. But these men revile things which they do not understand, and the things which they, they know by instinct, what kind of instinct are we referencing here? Like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. That's not a real popular description, positive description for these false teachers. Michael the archangel is a great example, but these, just the opposite. What a, what a pronouncement. Revile the things which they do not understand, things which they know by instinct, like unreason, unreasonable animals, a triad, by these things, what's the same result? Destruction. Do you see the pattern? Do you see the pattern? Do you see the pattern? Great warning about what is still to come. Here's what he says next. As we close. Seriously, I said that. As we close. Verse 11, and we'll pick up here in the morning. Here's what he says about these people. There was a sign, I told you. It's about, it's about time. He, he has three words for them. Woe to them. What is our God like in regards to his perspective on sin? He hates it, doesn't he? He hates it. Cannot allow it to go unpunished has wrath against it. He's perfectly pure, holy, and righteous. He despises it. And guess what, friends? So should we. A great study that maybe we'll do sometime together in the years to come, if the Lord wills, uh, are the letters to the seven churches. And one of the commendations to one of the churches is that, uh, I believe the church at Ephesus, that they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You know what God says about that? The Lord says about that? So do I. So do I. I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. 
licentious immorality. There's a huge lesson that we dare not forget in this church age, an age of grace, that God hates sin, and so should we. And he's provided a payment so his wrath could be poured out on his one and only son so our sin problem could be taken care of. And so there should be grand celebration by those of us who have trusted in Christ and grand relief. And yet grand woe should be the reality to those indeed who haven't believed. Woe to them. We'll pick up there. I ask you this as we close. And you can say it if you can be succinct and speak once. Or you can just think it if you'd like. But tell me this. What stands out in verses 5 through 10 of Hey Jude? This session, what stands out to you? Succinctly. Please and thank you, if you will, out loud. And if not, just ponder and respond in your mind and heart. But what has stood out to you in this particular section? The pattern of apostasy and false teaching. What else? Please, Brother Mike. Wrath has been poured out once, and it's going to be poured out again. Other reactions? Don't you love that, Amy? I love that reaction. For so many years, gave his half-brother grief about who he claimed to be and what others were saying about him. That had changed through the power of the resurrection. And now, full on, all in, is the reality of Jude. Relationally uh, dependent upon now, the one that he is a bondservant of, his half-brother, the Lord Jesus. Great observation. Others that stand out. Dave. He describes some hopeless cases here. This Jew. That's right. That's how they were described, isn't it? We need to make some wise choices, don't we? No doubt. Other reactions? Hope you don't mind this. I think it's helpful uh, to have a little bit of interaction together. Isn't that the heart of Jude? I would like to talk to you about salvation that is brought to you by my half-brother, the one I am serving willingly, but we got a big issue, so let's fight for this together. 
5 through 16 is a warning. Here's what they look like. Here's what they smell like. Here's what they sound like. Here's who they are. Be well aware. And, and I'm excited to get to the end with you where he says, now here's what you're supposed to do in light of all this. Other reactions? Isn't he, though? We would not deal the same way, would we? Long-suffering, forbearing, merciful, and gracious. Whew, what a great God. Should cause us to respond the right way. I've told you this before, but you forget so I can repeat. You know it all well. There is a man who influenced my life greatly, and he taught me to pray this simple prayer. Not like vain repetition, but sincerely pray this. His name was Paul Sapp. He uh, served at Emmaus in the correspondence school now known as Emmaus International. Um, but he served at Camp Elam in Denver, uh, Colorado Springs area. He was huge, giant of a man, 6'4", 6'5", 350 pounds, just huge. Really high-pitched voice, didn't fit his stature. And he used to say to me this in encouraging me uh, to pray. He used to say, Jonathan. I won't do that anymore, but <laughs> think of this in a high-pitched voice. He used to say, Jonathan, ask God to help you to hate sin and love him more. So I want to encourage you to own that prayer. Because I think one of the big problems that the church is facing today broad strokes, we tend to lose sight of the appropriate perspective on sin. And we often don't view it the way God views it. It should be that we still blush. Father, help us, I pray, to hate sin and love you more. Help us to respond the right way to this book. For those of us who have accepted the free gift of salvation by simply placing our faith, our trust, our belief in Christ alone, help us to celebrate and to offer worship and praise that the Lord Jesus died in our place for our sins and in doing so fully satisfied your wrath against all sin. And when we accepted Christ as our substitute for our sin, our sin was paid in full. I praise you that believers do not have to fear your wrath. But I ask that you would help us as believers to view sin still the way you do. Help us to hate it and help us to love you more. Father, may we be reminded of the world in which we live as Jude practically wanted to remind those in his day of the world in which they lived. Help us to understand the multiple ways in which he describes apostate, false teaching, ungodly individuals that are infecting and affecting lives. And I pray that we would have courage to respond the way this short practical book encourages us to. 
We ask these things in the worthy name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.